The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Today is a special edition of the History of Literature podcast. We're listening to one of James Joyce's favorite pieces of music right now. That should give you a clue. That's right. It's James Joyce Day here on the podcast. And we have a very special guest, Vincent O'Neill. Vincent O'Neill is the artistic director of the Irish Classical Theatre Company in Buffalo. He's here to talk about his life in the theatre and his lifelong passion for the works of James Joyce. We talk about the theatricality of Joyce's works and about Vincent's experiences playing Joyce and bringing the works of Joyce to the stage. Here's a man who went from playing a gorilla to adapting Finnegan's Wake. Talk about an odyssey. Someone should write a novel about him. In the meantime, we can enjoy his work at the Irish Classical Theatre Company. All of you listeners who are close to Buffalo should take a look at their website. They put on some wonderful plays. They have a new season coming up. Their website is irishclassical.com. Our website, of course, is historyofliterature.com. Or you can find us at facebook.com slash historyofliterature or at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E wilson.com. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Vincent O'Neill. Okay, I'm joined now by the Artistic Director of the Irish Classical Theatre Company. Vincent O'Neill, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with your background, and then we can dive into your interest in James Joyce. Uh, You were born in in Ireland and grew up in Dublin, is that right? That's right. In fact, um, I grew up in Sandy Cove, which is on the south coast of Dublin. Okay. It's where the Martello Tower is. That's oh, yes. Is in the opening chapter of Ulysses, of course. You know, right. Safety punk. And um, it is now a James Joyce Museum. So so that that was the little beach with the 40 foot, the Martello Tower, uh, the rocks where, um, where I grew up. So it's a kind of strange serendipity. Right. And did you visit the James Joyce Museum? Was it Was it already the museum when you were a child? No. No, it wasn't. In fact, it was an architect, Michael Scott, who had a who was the architect, actually, who uh, who designed the new Abbey Theatre, well, new when it was rebuilt in 1966, after it burnt down. And uh, he owned the Martello Tower. He had a, 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 an unusual house he built himself, and his backyard was the Martello Tower. Right. And I don't think it was really used for anything in particular. So, um, But now it's a very well-run museum and, uh, and really classy. Yes, I've, I've actually been there. And Joyce actually lived there, is that right? He did. He lived there briefly um, with um, Buck Mulligan right. and, uh, <laughs> and an English chap. He, he didn't stay there long because after the incident where um, <laughs> the, the, the uh, Englishman had a nightmare and Buck Mulligan took um, a, a, a shotgun and, and then fired at the fireplace. And that was that was the cue for you know, trying, trying to find a new landlord. 
So, uh, that's right. Yeah, but that neck of the woods, you know, Dalky, uh, where the, the school scene is, and then Fanny mm-hmm. Man's Crown on the way into Dublin. If you get the dark or Dublin area rapid transit from Sandy Coast into University College Dublin, which I did for four years when I was studying there, it was also um, Joyce's University. And it's just, it's like a Joycean odyssey. It's strange. You, you pass all the places, including Westland Row. And, uh, you know, Sweeney's, uh, chemist, and, uh, it's, it's, it's a, just a reworking of a part of the Bloom's journey on that day, on Stephen's journey to encounter him. Right. So you grew up kind of immersed in the, in the landscape that would be familiar to people who have read Joyce, but, but I'm guessing for you, you, it started out just as, just as home. Yeah. I had no, in my head, I had no association with Joyce whatsoever. It was just like, you know, where I played and, where I worked and where I lived and where I kicked soccer and uh, you know chased girls and all the rest of it. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't like there was there were no Joyce in associations until I was um, sixteen and I was in a, a little drama school mm-hmm. and they they rented the Peacock Theater which is underneath the Abbey and uh, they put on a Sunday evening show and uh, it was like a cultural literature show I suppose and they asked me to play Stephen Daedalus. Oh. And, um, yeah, and I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen D. It's, uh, it's by Hugh Leonard, mm-hmm. and it's an adaptation of Portrait of the Artist with a young man and Stephen Hero combined. Okay. And Stephen Davis is obviously the central um, figure in it because the whole thing's autobiographical. But uh, I got to play um, Stephen, Stephen D. in that, or Stephen Hero, if you like. And, and that was my first encounter with Joyce, and I think I was then a little bit too immature to really appreciate the the magic of it all, but the language fascinated me, and that was that was my first encounter. Right. Okay. So, had you been acting before that, or was that also your first experience in the theater? Well, you know, the the truth is that um, I, I was sent to drama school when I was eight years old because um, I was ten feet shy and, and had difficulty in conversation with the rest of the planet. And also, I had a, a, a double napkin you could cut with a carving knife. Right. So my, my parents decided that between my inability to communicate and when I did communicate, my uh, unintelligibility because of my <laughs> of my dialect, it was trying to do something with, with young Vincent, you know, so they sent me off to town to secure me, as it were. Well, I could secure his parents, and as it turned out, I'm not sure they intended that to go that far. So, um, yeah. So I got the bug, got the bug very early. Okay, and then you eventually uh, had some professional success. How old were you when you started performing at the Abbey Theatre? Well, I have two answers to that question. The, um, when I was, again, when I was uh, 17, I was just finishing high school, um, secondary school, as we called it over there, with the Christian Brothers, were very un-Christian. And uh, I was called up to the principal's office, which was usually the, you know, the jealous <laughs> room. But actually, he said um, that uh, the Abbey Theatre had called, and my brother, who was playing a walk-on in um, two lines in a, a play by Louis Magnese, um, was replacing someone who'd been injured during the cutting call, because they'd been sold new elevators. And, and uh, they needed a lookalike, and would I go in and, and, and play the two lines? And of course, I got a heart attack. But I did go in and I played the two lines and I'll tell you what they were. I was a vision mixer and a reworking of the Everyman uh, play. And my, my first line in that one was, um, shall I cut now? And uh, <laughs> my line in that two was, 
you will tell me when to cross. <laughs> that, was, that was all I had. And I was a nervous wreck. And Vincent Dowling was playing um, the producer. And, and he used to step on my foot when it was my time to the line. <laughs> so all I had to do was remember the order to keep in the line. And I was coming dry with the microphone. So so that was my first thing of speeches preparing for the Abbey. And then, um, you know, I had quite the artist here. I went to University College Dublin. Then I went to the um, Abbey Theatre School for two years, the School of Acting. And uh, then I went into, believe it or not, into the uh, Amateur Theatre, the number one company now in Sunday's Place. And, um, and then I went to Paris and studied mind at Nassau so for two years. Mm-hmm. When I came back, my brother had just started a theatre in the suburbs of Dublin called the Oscar Theatre in Bridge, Dublin 4. And I started working there as an actor for full was, I think, Matisse, and Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And, uh, and years later, um, an opportunity appeared in the, in the, <laughs> in the Abbey. I must have been, let me see, it was 1984. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was 34 at the time. And, um, the, the artistic director, Joe Dowling, who now runs the Duffy Theatre in Minneapolis, called me up and said, I have a role for you in the Abbey, but you're not going to want to play it. And I said, you must be insane. Of course I want to play it. He said, not when you hear what it is. I said, tell me more. He said, it's the title role in a new work. I said, that sounds, that sounds fine to me. He said, it's not actually in the Abbey. It's downstairs in the Peacock. I said, fine. He said, it's not the play. It's a musical. I said, uh, you have a problem here, Joe, because I can't sing. I think my parents sent me to mind school when they heard me sing. <laughs> so uh, he said, uh, no, he said, uh, don't worry about that because you don't have any lines. I said, I don't. He said, no. He said, I said, I thought you said I was playing the title role. He said, you are. He said, it's a musical for children. It's on at lunchtime in the Peacock. And it's only running for a week. And it's called The Lud McQuilla Gorilla. <laughs> and you're the gorilla. So Lud McQuilla is the highest mountain range in Ireland. So, um... I played the gorilla and I just like swung from the bars of a cage and chewed bananas and grunted and scratched my armpits basically and that was that was my that was my my second bite at the National Theatre so you know I, I I know like earlier when you were talking to my 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 daughter you said something about did he did he get success early <laughs> in very small integers to begin with was the answer to that so yeah but I I got my foot in the door or my 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 claw in the door, as it were, and right. uh, then they asked me to be movement director for a couple of plays, um, Shakespeare, actually, and uh, then I got involved with um, Patrick Mason, who was my my mentor when I was in the School of Acting, and he went on to greater things. He was the voice coach for the Abbey Company, and then he started directing, and uh, he became a kind of an internationally celebrated director. In fact, he won the Tony Award for... Um, Dancing at Lunasa, the Brian Fruit play, and he oh, brought it mm-hmm. up to Broadway. Yeah, and, and uh, in his early days, he um, was working with um, an experimental Irish playwright called Tom McIntyre, theater of the living image, if you like, and uh, because it was so critical, and I trained in mine, he asked me to be movement director for it, and then they were short for a role, and they asked me to be the priest, and I came in, and it was basically improvisatory, so I improvised my way into a more substantial role, and um, then two lines, and then he, he did four more in that series of new plays with that author and that director. So, um, and and they went on a world tour. So uh, I ended up as a member of the Abbey Theatre Company, and I was there for five years before I emigrated. Right. Okay. And then, how did you wind up in Buffalo, New York? 
Well, it's a long story, so I hope you have some time here, but I, I'll, try and, I'll try and tell the non-shaggy dog version of it. Um, we did Waiting for God over a decade in a tiny theater in Dublin called The Project. Mm-hmm. And the man who directed, a very gifted writer and director and actor called Peter Sheridan, he's one of the uh, the uh, famous Sheridan brothers. The other one is Jim Sheridan, who's now a, a significant filmmaker in, in Hollywood, in America, and in the name of the father, my mm. left foot, all the Daniel Day Lewis films he did. Right, and, right. and the brother Peter stayed in Dublin, and, and Peter directed Waiting for Godot, and uh, he wanted to bring it to the States. So he called Jim, and Jim was running the Irish Art Centre in New York. He said, can you bring it over? And Jim said, yeah, sure, of course, bring it over, no problem. You can all sleep in the, in the, in, in the apartment. And um, so we said, great. Chris, my brother, applied for the rights, couldn't get them, and applied again to the amateur rights because we weren't getting paid. Still couldn't get them. Some producer had bought them out. So Jim said, why don't you call a friend of mine in Rochester, New York, John Everett, he's a businessman, he loves all things Irish. Chris did, and uh, John said, uh, over you come, uh, I'll take your plane fares, you sleep on the floor, bring your sleeping bags, you don't get paid for doing the show, but I promise you I'll wind you and dine you, and that was the deal. Right. And we went there, and we stayed at Nazareth College in Rochester, it was a huge success. Somebody in Buffalo saw it, said, can you bring it to Buffalo? We said, what's the deal? They said, well, they're not getting paid. <laughs> this was like, <laughs> <laughs> the land of the free and, you know, and right, right. paved with gold, all the old Irish ballads <laughs> turned out to be not quite so easy. But anyway, they had a hotel and they had a bar, the Cannon Bar, and um, so we hung out there. We had a great time. And uh, the, the show, again, was a huge success. My brother stayed on in America, never came back. I was with the Abbey, so I returned to Ireland. And uh, five years later, I got a visa in the mail and... Um, Offering me a um, you know permanent residence, so I said to her, I was newly married, and Laura was one year, one year, uh, one year old, mm-hmm. and uh, my daughter. And we said, well, shall we um, give it a shot? And we said we do it for six months. So we moved all my belongings to my mother's attic, and uh, we came for six months, and that was twenty six years ago. <laughs> wow! <laughs> we never went back, and the reason we never went back was because. We started the theatre company in our first year, and it really took off, the Irish Gospel Theatre. Right. And, uh, and if you're an actor, um, you can act whenever you want, and you can direct whenever you want, and you can choose the plays you really believe in, and are committed to and want to do. Um, well, that is kind of the actor's dream, and I, I wasn't going to turn my back on that. So Yeah, but I, yeah. I, I would guess uh, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's a great story. And I would, I, I was thinking that the advantage was all of the artistic control that you've been able to have. On the other hand, it also probably comes with a lot of challenges of running a business and marketing and having hiring and firing people and and keeping the lights on and all of that. Was that something that you had been doing when you were in Ireland, or was that all new to you? Um, some of it was. Some of it, uh, well, I ran the theater with my brother, and mm-hmm. we also started the theater school, the Oscar School of Acting, and I ran a mine company, and I had run a children's theater school, so I had a lot under my belt before I came over here. Right, I, right. I had my brother, he ran, he ran um, you know, he, he was in a soap on Irish television called The Weirdens, which ran for 14 years, and he used to, like, uh, run tours around Ireland to little kind of holiday villages in the summer, and I was a uh, manager for those and he was the entrepreneur and the producer 
and uh, he had he had an agency for actors. And actually, um, Gabriel Byrne and Liam Neeson were two of the stage actors who were in his agency before they they appeared before a camera. Oh, really? So he he. Yeah, he always bemoaned the fact that if he stayed with him, he would have been a millionaire. <laughs> so I think people move on, you know. So right. Yeah, so we had we had a background, I suppose, in running things and being entrepreneurs and uh, and I suppose a bit of leadership and all that. But uh, I'd say the two areas, truthfully, that um, were completely new for me. One was fundraising. I didn't realize that it's been a not for profit. <laughs> You know, 50% comes from box office and the other 50% comes from, you know, philanthropy and, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, government funding, uh, state, city, county funding, uh, foundation funding, corporate funding, individuals, and you have to tap into all those different markets and, uh, right. and them and, uh, you know, inveigle them into seeing the work and then falling in love with the work and then keeping the relationships going. And that was completely new to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, the other area was marketing, that it doesn't matter how good a product you have or how, how classy or high quality the work is, if nobody knows about it, nobody comes to see it. So right. marketing became as important as, you know, the quality of the work. So, and yeah, I, so I suppose marketing and development of fundraising were the two really challenging areas, yeah. Right. Well, something has gone right. I, I saw on the website that it's your 25th anniversary season of the Irish Classical Theatre Company. Uh, are you planning yeah. to celebrate that in any way? Well, we, we already have. We're coming out of it. In fact, we start rehearsals tomorrow for um, Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth, which is the beginning of our 26th season. So, yeah, but the beginning of the year, we did a, we had this uh, kind of uh, phenomenon here in Buffalo called Curtain Up. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's uh, unique in the world of theater where all of like 20 theater companies open their doors at the same moment all the curtains go up at exactly the same moment 8 o'clock p.m. on Friday the 20th of September or whatever and uh, all the artists like to give a little speech and then we do the shows together before that there's a, a dinner that the community are invited to and and then they drift down to the theaters, and after the show, there's a huge street party with jugglers and all the rest of it, and bands and whatever. So it's it's quite the night, and it's the official opening of the um, theater season. So on that night, we had our own individual party uh, to celebrate the 25th, and then at the end of the season, we, we did an ideal husband by Oscar Wilde, and we brought mm. the entire cast back, and some of our major donors and all our staff and people who helped us out through the 25 years and uh, unfortunately a couple of widows of people who were involved in the early part of the uh, mm-hmm. organizing the whole thing and, uh, and and we had a, a wonderful party so uh, yeah we, we kind of bookended it with a celebration at the beginning and the end Wow well congratulations and and good luck for the next 25 years well thank you <laughs> okay so let's get back I'll to check your I'll with you in 25 years time let you know how I'm doing <laughs> Well, I hope you'll come back on the show before then. Uh, let's of get course. back. To, let's talk about your interest in James Joyce. Now, so there you were. Um, uh, after you appeared in the play, um, did you? Was that when you started reading his works and realizing that you had had a, a famous author who basically had written about all of the places that you knew so well? Really, no. And I should answer yes that question, but the truth is, no. I, I didn't. I didn't make the connection. I kept hearing the name James Joyce, but I wasn't like 
I wasn't familiar with his work, but I, I did go to University College Dublin, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that I went to the old UCD, which is the Newman House, in um, you know, St. Stephen's Green, where Joyce went. Right. And um, my first year English class, I had a, a, a professor called Augustine Martin, who was a Joycean, and uh, he introduced me to Portrait of the Artist, and I was mm-hmm. smitten. I was mm. kind of the instant love, if you like. And and then I went back, of course, and remembered um, Stephen D. And I reread Two Lenders Stephen D. And then I went back and read Stephen Hero, and then Dubliners, and then I really got into it. But it took a while before I kind of took on Ulysses. But um, right. I, I did um, have one other Joyce in encounter, which was um, there was a summer where I didn't have any theater lined up. There was a new theater company called Stage One, running out of Trinity College in Dublin, mm-hmm. where I actually went for my graduate studies, but they had a little theater in number three, Trinity College, as we go in the archway on the right-hand side there, in the quad, and it was run by Douglas Kennedy, who's now a very famous novelist, and a chap called Robert McNamara, who runs a theater company in Washington, D.C., and back in the day, they were kind of graduate students at Trinity in English, and they decided to run this company for the summer, and they went to the space. And I thought they were doing Crap's Last Tape, which is one of my favorite plays. So I went into this, and I'm in my late 20s, you know, and, <laughs> and, and Crap is at the end of his life. So when I walked in, they said, well, what are you auditioning for? And I said, Crap, they started laughing. They said, we're not going to let you audition for Crap. <laughs> I said, but that's what I want to audition for. They said, well, we're not going to let you because we're not going to cast you. And I said, look, if you're good enough an actor, you can play anything. They said, we're not going to cast you. They said, I said, can I read anyway? They said, you can read anyway, but we're not going to cast you. I said, fine. And I read, and of course, they didn't cast me. But they were doing two other plays that summer. One was The Jesuit by Donald Campbell, mm-hmm. and the other was Exiles. Uh, which, oh. of course, is James Joyce's only play. Right. And uh, so I went uh, I went through the archway a week later to check the results, knowing I, I didn't get cast, and I wasn't. But I was picking out of curiosity for the other cast, and I saw I was cast as Richard Rowan in Exile. And uh, you're familiar with the play. Richard Rowan, of course, is the Joyce character and uh, the protagonist in, in Exile. Mm-hmm. And I was thrilled, and... Um, I went home and read the play, and I wasn't hugely impressed, but it was a great opportunity. So we did it in Trinity during uh, an international Joyce convention. So there were all kinds of like Joycean experts came to see it, and they loved it. And uh, Marie Jola, who was a, a special friend of Joyce, she came and saw it. I met her afterwards, and she said, the uh, you are like him, Joyce. You sound like him, and you look like him, but there is a problem. James Joyce always crossed his legs three times, and you only crossed him twice. <laughs> <laughs> I made that little change to my performance for the rest of the run. I think you would have to, yeah. So, and we packed the place, and then we went, it was only 100 feet, and, uh, and then we brought an intro down to the Everyman in Cork in the South, and nobody came to see us. Right. And we had like, <laughs> 12 people in the audience, you know, so it was um, six after the intermission, you know. So, yeah, I don't think it's a great play, quite honestly, and I hate to say this, and I'm talking about a genius here, but right. truthfully, I think that when he wrote Exiles, he was going through his Ibsen phase and was so influenced by Ibsen mm-hmm. that instead of writing first class uh, theatrical joys, he wrote second class Ibsen, and right. I think that's why it, it, it failed. 
Okay, I'm going to pause there for a moment. Our audio faded a bit, so I had to make some edits. We talked about the magical language and rhythm and musicality of Joyce's prose, the glamorous squalor of Joyce's Dublin, the theatricality of the novel Ulysses, and a one-man show that Vincent staged in which he played James Joyce. We'll resume again where he's discussing his efforts to adapt Finnegan's Wake for the stage. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. I could I could see a couple of approaches to take. One might be, I mean, I, I think one of Joyce's, um, his aims was not to have a, a single coherent uh, chronological narrative, but to to have more of a multiplicity of, of plots and storylines and themes that overlap and wind around each other. And, and one approach I think you, you might take would be to kind of sort some of that out and, and present something that would maybe be a single interpretation of, of the things in Finnegan's wake. And another approach might be to explore what it would mean to have, you know, the storylines kind of exploded all over the place. And, and I'm wondering which one, how you approached uh, bringing that to the stage? Well, I, I took the first of those two possibilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more I read it, the more I realized that there were five central characters. Now, when I say there's five central characters, they, they multiply. They multiply in, right. into, so, you know, H.C.E., uh, the father, mm-hmm. uh, Humphrey Chimpton Earwaker, um, he's a father figure, but, but he's also Fiona McCool and he's also Cuchulain and he's also Brian Baru and he's also like all of Irish history. Right. And he's the Dublin mountain. So he's got geographical and historical and cultural and all kinds of, you know, if you like splinters or, um, multiplications or manifestations. And, um, and then Anna Olivia is the wife and she's also very obviously the river Liffey, but she's also the earth mother and she's all mothers. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the twins and the sons, Sean and Shem. Shem, is, of course, is the corruption of, of James, so it's James Joyce. So Shem and Sean are the, the, the two twins, but they're, they're, they're both Joyce. They're the yin and yang of Joyce. Mm-hmm. You think of like Brian Friel's Philadelphia Here I Come, where you've got Gar Public and Gar Private. 
it's a little bit like the same concept. We've got Shem and Sean, and Sean is the extrovert, and Shem is the introvert and artist. So it's the two sides that any of us have, but it's really one person. So he's the son, and then uh, Isabella is the daughter, and Isabella is also the little stream that becomes the mother, and Isabella is, is all... Um, all females before maturity and uh, I suppose the quintessential virgin and the, uh, the, the incestuous sister and all young girls and uh, uh, he calls her Puccella and uh, Nuvoletta. Nuvoletta means little clouds, so that's her kind of geographical manifestation. So each of them has like a hundred identities, but if you if you burrow down underneath all the different identities, you keep coming back to the number five, which is the mother, the father, the twin brothers, and the daughter. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to travel through the novel and and just latch onto these five characters mm-hmm. and see what their particular journey is. And even that was inordinately difficult because. Because like Don Quixote, uh, Cervantes, it just keeps going in circles. And there's so many digressions that you forget what the, the main focus was before you went on the multiplicity of digressions. Right. So it was quite the job, but um, we, and, we and, uh, got uh, there. And characters will change and without being announced that the characters have changed? or There's, Nothing is there's no sort of uh, no. guideposts or more markers to help? The reader along the way, it's it's simulating more of a, a dream-like experience. Yeah, and dream is the perfect you know word for it. It's dream nightmare, if you like. Mm-hmm. I, I called my adaptation night night maze, M A Z E, because it's a nightmare, but it's also um, it's 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 the night, it's the obscurity, the darkness, the other side that we don't like to show ourselves. Because again, it's an act of courage, and then maze, of course, because it's a labyrinth. Because he deliberately creates, you know, pools within pools within pools, you know. So it's like a vortex. Right. And um, but I, I I called it night maze, and we we I had huge problems getting the rights from Stephen Joyce, who's and Joyce's grandson, who's oh. notoriously difficult individual. Yeah. Notoriously difficult, but he no longer holds the rights because Joyce is public domain now. So. One of the happiest days of my life was was on Joyce in public domain. Not because I wanted to do a lot more original, well, adaptations of Joyce, but because that that individual could no longer control, um, you know, right. his grandfather's work because his grandfather's work is so rich that it belongs to the world. It doesn't belong to an individual, you know. So after 14 rewrites, he allowed me to um, produce it, but only if. <clears throat> I, I didn't get any royalties from it, and all the royalties went directly to him. Right. And so, you know, I was so anxious to put it on. At that point, I, I didn't care, and I never did it to make money anyway. So right. I, I directed it, and um, I got five wonderful actors, and we put it on. And <laughs> I, I think it was the most surprising uh, production we've ever put on. We have a very loyal audience that we built up over, you know, I think it was 18 years then. And, um, and they came, and right. they filled the place for five weeks. Wow. Now, they mixed feelings about it. Some people said it's the best thing I've ever seen and I'll never miss another show you do. And the other half said, if you ever do a show like that again, I'm never coming back. <laughs> so it, it really split people, but um, I'm, right. I'm really pleased I did it. And it was one of the kind of, uh, I don't know, milestones, I think, my, in, in, in the history of the company. 
Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by the whole project, the whole undertaking of it. So when you were going through Finnegan's Wake in such a deep way, I know that basically no two critics or no two scholars agree on exactly like they could never write a plot summary that everyone else would agree with. And I'm wondering, did you feel like Joyce was in some ways inviting you to be creative and to use your own imagination and your own intellect in order to, um, you know, fully absorb and process what you were reading? Or did you feel like he was kind of, you know, five steps ahead of you and you were chasing him and you could never quite catch up to whatever it was that oh, he had in he, mind. He's a, he's a thousand steps ahead of all of us. Yeah. And, and deliberately so. I mean, he said he wanted to write a work that would keep the professors guessing for centuries. And uh, <laughs> in that he was very successful. I think he's created more PhD students yeah. in English literature than anybody else in the history of literature because it's so open to interpretation. So it's, you know, the truth is that Anybody who takes it on, it's going to be your personal interpretation of it. But I feel like I've had so many encounters with Joyce's work, and not in an academic way, but in a in a visceral, personal way, in terms of bringing his work to life on stage, right. and and kind of filtering through my my persona, and especially my experience growing up in Dublin. And and like Joyce, I was kind of lower middle class, and like Joyce, I was a Catholic, and like Joyce, I went to the Christian Brothers and uh, and not the Jesuits, but the Christian Brothers in, in his early days. And like Joyce, I went to University College Dublin, and uh, you know, uh, and and he became an artist, and in a very different way, I suppose, being an actor, I became an interpreter of artist. So it's like the journeys, and you know, I mean, he's a genius, and I certainly am, and but the journeys, the life journeys, are very, very parallel. So. Right. And especially your knowledge of Dublin and Dubliners and the Dublin vernacular and how people express themselves and their sense of humor and their inability to take themselves seriously. And, um, and, and then, you know, for you know, the last 20 years before I did it, I've been, you know, putting on productions. We, we put on 180 productions, you know, over mm. 25 years. So we do six a year and usually like half of those are Irish. So, I've dabbled in every Irish writer, particularly every Irish dramatist, you know, right, at right. one point or another in my, in my, so I think all of that kind of filters into when you're reading, when you're reading the novel, which is voluminous, you just, you come across phrases, you see, that's a, that's a, that's a spoken word. That's not a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. is something somebody said. And then you got to backtrack and say, it does this, would this come out of the mouth of Isabella? Would this come out of the mouth of Anne Olivia? And and if so, in what context does it fit? And it's trying to pull those strands together into some kind of coherent narrative without at the same time cheating the circular kind of structure of the book. And, and that really was the challenge. But uh, I, I came well armed, I suppose, to it. And, and with a huge degree of innocence, because I think if you get too academically involved, um, you lose your ability to just step outside of it completely and, and just in a almost disingenuous way just just pick the plums that you know make the orchard right right yeah he's he's very uh earthy and and grounded even even as he's Always. you know can also be um very aesthetic and and intellectual um yes. did, so was your 
you obviously have a great deal of of respect and admiration for Joyce, and I think it's it's clear that he was an inspiration. I'm wondering, were there times when you were going through all of those drafts where you resented Joyce, or you you felt like um, he had uh, been more obscure than he needed to be, or uh, were there any feelings that you know you had had enough of Joyce and and you'd be happy if you never picked up another book of his? No, no, truthfully, and you know, I'm not saying what I, I think you want to hear. Um, no, there's so much. It's like Shakespeare, you know. Right, I mean, not right. everything Shakespeare wrote was was pure, uh, untrammeled genius, but um, there's so much magic there. Right. I mean, Joyce was obsessed with Shakespeare, and rightly so, because Shakespeare may, was the greatest, you know, dramatist that ever lived, and I believe Joyce was the greatest novelist that ever lived, and mm-hmm. it's totally understandable that he would have been obsessed with them. And just like Shakespeare, there's so many riches there. Right. But if you have to take a circuitous journey to find the gold underneath the, the earth, it's worth it. It's worth going to Perinian just, just to find the the magic and the diamonds and the minerals that are, that are down there. And right. uh, and they're there, you know, even in the opening page of Finnegan's Wake, you find them, you know, or Ulysses or, or any of the books. The, the one um, work I... I didn't mention to you is um, is Dubliners and mm-hmm. um, we can go back to Finnegan's Wake, but um, The Dead um, yes. was adapted for the stage. I believe it was by Terence McNally. Mm-hmm. I know the music was by Sean Davy, a great Irish music, contemporary musician, and uh, it, it, it lends itself to a dramatization. I, I think a lot of Joyce does, you know, mm-hmm. separate styles. <laughs> Right. And um, so we, <laughs> right. we we did this um, several Christmases ago, uh, a large cast, and it's, it's it's not really a musical. It's a play mm-hmm. uh, in which there are songs, you know, around the piano, you know, the, the basic premise. Right. And um, it was so successful that we revived it, and we did it two years in a row, and we're going to revive it again. It's a really nice adaptation. So coming back to your earlier question of does, does, does Joyce have an intrinsic theatricality, uh, to me without a shadow of doubt, he does. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I suppose where my, my instincts and my sensitivities and my proclivities would have been kind of drawn to the man because I can smell the theatricality of it. And, and yet underneath the theatricality, as with all the theaters, there's a, a humanity simmering underneath the surface. You know, it, it's interesting, as I was thinking about Joyce and getting ready for this podcast, I was thinking, you know, a lot of his contemporary authors, um, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the famous Americans who were also writing in the in the 20s and 30s, like Ernest Hemingway and, and William Faulkner and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, you know, they, they all had kind of a relationship with Hollywood and they would, some of them would work on screenplays or they would, you know, meet the, the directors and work with them. As far as I know, Joyce never really had that relationship. And it seems like theater was just a more natural home for him and a more natural fit. It, it's hard to imagine him like living in Hollywood and, and working on screenplays to make money, for example. He seems to be... No, but he did love, he did love cinema. Oh, and, he did? Uh, and, yeah, and, and here's a here's a fact that not a lot of uh, people know, is that the first cinema in Ireland was founded by James Joyce. Oh. It was called the, the Volta, and mm-hmm. uh, I think Pierce Street... You know, off the Trinity College there in the center of Dublin. And it was a failed enterprise, but he, he thought that, 
you know, because his experience in Zurich and Paris and all the rest of it on the continent, and he'd, he'd seen cinema, and he thought this was something that doesn't exist in Ireland and should. And uh, he thought it'd be a great way to come back um, to Ireland covered in glory. <laughs> oh, right. the first, but it, it didn't really take off. So he was interested in cinema, and his work is cinematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think he was interested in writing screenplays or, you know, I'm sure the whole Hollywood thing would not have held any huge attraction for him. Who knows, though, if he were writing now, it probably would. Yeah, know? right. He he definitely had, you know, his facility with story and with moments. I mean, in the Dubliners, right. his, his emphasis on epiphanies and, um, you yeah. know, it, it could really, that could really translate well. But a lot of the other connection with the other writers you mentioned is that they, all of them virtually spent time in Paris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like the, the impressionist painters, you know, there's, there, there are periods in history, whether it's uh, painting or literature, where there's a great coming together of minds, mm-hmm. uh, like Beckett and Joyce working together in Paris, but with Ezra Pound and all the others. And, right. Um, and, and then Ezra Pound in influencing Yeats and introducing him to the whole kind of no theater canon and it, all that kind of fertility and, and interaction is, uh, it happens in waves. And I think there was a wave in Paris, uh, when, when Joyce was there. And not just that Beckett worked as a, as a secretary, but with Ezra Pound and the others, there's, there's just, um, a, a, a blooming, if you forgive, of a, or noun rather, of, um, of, of talent. And I think Paris was the catalyst. Mm-hmm. And you know, if 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 you grew up in Dublin, even in my day, it was very repressive and very claustrophobic. And the Catholic Church had a, an overarching um, control over everything, including education. And and they're even written into the Constitution that they have rights that other religions don't. And um, which, from an American viewpoint, would be anti-constitutional. Right. Um, but that's the kind of influence they had. If you think of Franco in Spain, it was very very similar with De Valera in Ireland. And uh, and growing up in that, um, you know, he he said non serviam, I will not serve, and you know he's he's going to go off to Europe and use silence, exile, and cunning as a survival tool, because um, he felt that the Catholic Church and then the um, English colonialism and the and the pettiness of the Irish of that trifecta was destroying his his artistic kind of you know, create a personal crucible so he felt he had to exile himself. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think it's accidental that Shaw was in exile, uh, Oscar Wilde was in exile, Yeats for a long period was in exile, um, Beckett was, uh, Joyce was. And this is not just an accident of history. This was because genuinely creative people, especially in literature at that time, were not allowed to express themselves fully. Think of them Things played over the Western world and what happened on the opening mm. night in the Abbey, or mm-hmm. I think of Donald Casey's Pound the Stars. Anything that, that pushed against the status quo had this immediate kind of uh, populist backlash, which right. was, you know, carefully fomented by the powers that be and, you know, the, um, the military and, and the, the ruling English and the Catholic Church. So, I mean, somebody with his. Uh, courage and creative powers, he, he had to escape. And this is not some kind of anti, anti-Irish anti diet, I adore Ireland and, and my roots are there and everything I've ever made because I'm Irish and I, I love the country to death. So it, I'm just talking about a certain period in history that people felt, he kept talking about the nets that were holding them down, you know, mm-hmm. and um, 
and yeah. escaping the nets, and, and he did. And I, I think that's what happened in Paris. Paris was, you know, uh, again, it was the crucible of creativity and openness and flexibility, and uh, and people were incentivized to, you know, create new worlds for themselves and to take risks and to be outrageous. And, uh, you know, whether Toulouse the Trek or whoever you're talking about, it was, there was an outrageousness there that was, was not only permitted, but almost encouraged. And right. I think, um, and Joyce certainly kind of um, rode on that wave to a certain extent. Right. One of the things that interests me about, about Joyce and his artistic exile, I guess is maybe the best way to put it, is, you know, he what he didn't do was uh, leave and then sort of say, um, well, I've, I've, you know, shaken that from my past. I'm, I'm brushing that away. But he, he so obviously loved Dublin and, and I think his yeah. quote was he wanted to rebuild it brick by brick. And That's you know, correct. The, yeah. the, the idea of leaving it just seems all the more aching and poignant because it's, it's so obvious where he, he had so much love for his home. His heart is totally. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's a living scandal that he's not buried in Dublin because um, I, if he came back to Earth and he had, was granted one wish, would be you know instead of being in Blauturn Cemetery wherever it is in Zurich, right. that he would be um you know back in Dublin. Right. Uh, just as Yeats, Yeats's body was repatriated, and I'm, I'm I'm sure he would because his heart, as you rightly say, his heart, his soul, his being, his memories, his his whole, his whole living presence belongs to Dublin. Mm-hmm. Everything he ever wrote about directly or indirectly was about Dublin. And I think, you know, and I have a, had a slightly similar experience myself. By leaving Dublin, you, you grow an appreciation of it. You love it more. You see mm-hmm. it in comparison and going back there, you can embrace it more fully. And, um, and I think that's what happened to him. And I think he had to leave it in order to recreate it. And, uh, you know, in 500 years' time, um, people will still see Dublin, the city, no matter what happens to it. It's now a very cosmopolitan city, through the prism of Joyce's work, because right. uh, he, 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 in an ultimate way, totally captured the essence of that city, like no one ever has. Right. I was going to ask you about that, but I think maybe you've already answered the question of whether you reading Joyce after having spent so many years yourself outside of Dublin, if that resonated for you in particular, that Joyce had had gone through a similar kind of uh, passage. Of course. Of course. I, I don't even like putting myself in the same kind of sentence. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're all human. We all have similar experiences. And reading uh, yeah. Joyce as an exile... Um, it's a profound experience and a very personal experience and, and a hugely nostalgic experience. You know, it's, it's interesting, like recently I saw that, um, that film, um, the Tribune film, um, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, about emigration and, and, and the girl Sue Coronan role was split between her love for the new country and her heart being in the old country. And, and that's Fisher, if you like, that when I, I, I wept when I saw the film because, I realized that you think you've left, but you haven't left because you, mm. you, you can't leave. Mm-hmm. You're geographically displaced, but you, you never, you can't leave Ireland. So when you read, you read Joyce's work, it's a really a poem of love to his native country. No matter how much he ponders it, it's love. You can read it in the pages. And, uh, of course, it's very, very moving for 
anybody in my situation. Right. Now, there's one other performative aspect of Ulysses I wanted to ask you about, and that is uh, Bloomsday celebrations. Right. And um, for for listeners who might not be familiar with this, it's it's essentially uh, uh, the novel Ulysses takes place in a single day, June sixteenth, and uh, Bloomsday celebrations will often uh, have public readings of the entire novel, and and um, right. different um, people will in Dublin, I guess, people will go to visit different places and and settings that occur in the novel. And I understand that you've been involved with some Bloomsday celebrations of your own. Uh, were you, and I know you've done them in Buffalo. Were, did you also uh, participate in any when you were in Ireland? No, you know, the second last time I, I, I've been to Ireland twice this summer and I was there last summer and um, I was asked to, to buy a bar of uh, um, soap in, in is the Sheen's pharmacy that Paul <laughs> Bloom goes into. So I, I went down to the pharmacy and sure enough, of course, was selling the soap. And yeah. um, when I was there, there were seven people reading <laughs> Ulysses. So it was like Guinness World Book of Records. There was nothing to do with Bloomsday. It was like in July, but they were reading, you know, and it goes on all day, every day. And so it's like there's a, a, a permanent pilgrimage to Joyce, if you wow. like, going on in Dublin. Wow. Certainly in Sheen's Pharmacy. And um, yeah, no, I, I uh, attended a lot of Bloomsday events. And mm-hmm. uh, I certainly did excerpts from Joyicity, which is full of Ulysses, in different places in Bloomsday. Um, when I was there, I was invited by the Irish ambassador to Japan to bring Joyicity to um, to Tokyo the week of Bloomsday, and I did it in his embassy, and, and then I did it for the James Joyce Society of Japan, and then we traveled to uh, on to Sydney, and I did it uh, at the Crossroads Theatre in Sydney for two weeks, wow. and that was a two-week celebration of Bloomsday. So, and we have our own celebration here, and um, I also brought it to Toronto because where they celebrate Bloomsday in a huge way. But in Buffalo, we started our own Bloomsday. There's a friend of mine called Lauren Shine, who's a lover of all things Irish and, you know, uh, a, a great, you know, admirer and uh, of Irish literature. And uh, he's a kind of a renaissance encyclopedic knowledge of everything Irish. And he was a barman in uh, in one of the Irish bars here. And I was chatting with him on Sunday afternoon and we were talking about Bloomsday. I said, where do they celebrate it here? He said, ironically, they don't. I mm. said, why don't they? He said, I don't know. I said, you love Joyce. I love Joyce. Let's do it. <laughs> so we went to a friend of ours, Jim Ward, and we took over his house in the backyard and we invited 60 people. And this was 18 years ago when we started Bloomsday Buffalo. It was actually a website, Bloomsday Buffalo. And um, we've been doing it for 18 years. And uh, we started uh, in the backyard. Then we brought it to our theater. And then we expanded and we do it all over the um, city, including, you know, um, in, in the graveyard for the grape scene and, uh, you know, down by the sea for the, you know, Nausicaa scene and all the rest of it. So it's um, it's become quite the annual celebration in Buffalo. And mm-hmm. uh, and our, our theatre company, Irish Classical Theatre, is very, very closely associated with it. And all the actors that work with us throughout the year, they, they do the reading. So it's quite theatrical, right. and, you know, it's a wonderful event. Oh, that's great. You know, I wonder if what... Uh what originally or what continues to animate Bloomsday celebrations is the feeling people get when they're reading Ulysses is that it really is almost meant to be read aloud. 
Well, I think as with all Joyce, it's meant to be rather loud. Right. Um, because as I said earlier, his, uh, you know, quintessentially musical ear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say Dylan Thomas, you know, when he was composing his poetry that, um, uh, in the shed at the, the back of his garden, he would be like chanting it until the rhythms were right. And, uh, when, you know, Yates was staying in Cool Park, he'd keep Lady Gregory awake at night, you know, chanting the rhythms of his poems before he found the lyrics, before he found the words to the poem. So right. again, it's, it's something in the, in the Celtic character where the musicality comes first and, and then I think the language, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, and it's true. It's true even now. If you look at, you know, Martin McDonough or Sebastian Barry or, you know, even contemporary writers, it's, it's all about the rhythm and the language and the musicality. And, uh, so for, for Joyce, I think the musicality came first. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's, thank you so much for talking to me today. I, I really have enjoyed this and, and I just, uh, love the idea of, um, all of your efforts to marry, uh, your interest in James Joyce and your experience and your, uh, expertise in the theater. And I did, sure. I did, uh, take a look at the, upcoming season of the Irish Classical Theatre Company, and I have to say it makes me wish that I lived closer to Buffalo so I could attend more of these. Uh, I'm going to post a, a link to the website in the show notes, but it looks like you have quite Please a season. <laughs> you have uh, a good season coming up with Amadeus and uh, the Noel Coward play. You mentioned Hay Fever or uh, Tennessee yeah. Williams' uh, Sweet Bird of Youth, and what are you what are you excited about this year? Well, you know, I, I love Tennessee Williams. Sweet Bird of Youth is a great way get the season off the ground. Peter Schaefer died this year, so we're doing a tribute to him with Ecruf, uh-huh. uh which is arguably his greatest play, and, and Amadeus. And we're doing Amadeus with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, wow. Um, playing live, which, which will be one. But we did Boys Like Gentlemen with them a couple of years ago, and it just adds a whole other, you can imagine the entire, you know, 70 piece orchestra behind us. Wow. As we perform, it's just a, it's a wonderful experience. Then we're doing a new play by a wonderful Irish a play by called Brian Delaney uh-huh. called The Seedbed and um, that's kind of a, a Western Europe premiere and, and then Terence Radigan's The Winslow Boy and mm. then we're going to finish up as you said with No uh, uh, Coward Hay Fever oh wow so it's uh, yeah quite the journey yeah but I did just want to mention to you that, uh, that my daughter Laura's younger brother Jamie was named after James Joyce so oh. um, I'm, ho- I'm hoping somehow <laughs> they carry the baton <laughs> how old is how old is Jamie? Jamie's twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah. Okay. So has has he uh has he taken after you and is does he enjoy reading the works of, of Joyce or is is that something not he has, yet, but not he, yet. He, lo- he loves language. Well they grew up we we, we know babysitters so and, and my wife is an actress. So they, they grew up um they grew up <laughs> they grew up sitting in theaters watching uh, right. us rehearse. So I think he's got a, a, an unwanted immersion in language. But yeah, he's taken to the stage, and he's a, he's an engineer by profession. He just graduated. But uh, he did three shows last year, finishing up about mice and men. So who knows? Right. You know, who right. knows? Yes, this is alive and well in Buffalo. <laughs> you know, I uh, I have a funny story for you. I I was once okay. a uh, an English teacher in Taiwan, and I had... Wow. Um, uh, kids would come in and, and their teachers would give them English names, you know, so that they could, while they were in English class, we could call them by their English name. And, um, Mm. for the kindergarten classes, they didn't have their names yet. And so the teacher would ask them, 
to uh, would ask me to give them names. And there was a, a set of twins that came in, a boy and a girl, and I gave them the names uh, James and Joyce. So if you ever, uh, I think they're they're probably you know in their twenties by now. So if you ever encounter uh, a, a Taiwanese family and and they have children named James and Joyce, you can probably thank me for that. <laughs> That's delightful, delightful, yeah. So we all pass on the baton in our different ways. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. That's my contribution to letters. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> okay, well, um, best of luck for a successful season, and thanks again for joining me today on the History of Literature. No, it's a pleasure and an honor, and, and good luck with the podcast, and I, I love the interview every second of it. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? Oh, I enjoyed that immensely. Every second of it, as Vincent said. Maybe even more. Is that possible? More than every second? Vincent said something I've been revolving around in my mind ever since. If James Joyce returned to Earth and could be granted one wish... It would be that he be buried in Ireland. I I can't stop thinking about that. That's the wish he would have. Not to be alive, but to change where he's buried. Is that how death works? I think that must mean there's a heaven. Because otherwise, I think if I had one wish, it would probably be that I don't want to be buried at all. Anywhere. (laughs) But maybe he's right. I hope he is. It's a nice thought. Speaking of nice thoughts, you can get more episodes of the History of Literature podcast by subscribing to the show through iTunes and Stitcher and all kinds of other podcast apps. While you're there, please show us some love with ratings and reviews, or you can leave a comment on the website or on Facebook. Share us, like us, or send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. Leave a comment at jackwilson.com. All kinds of ways to get in touch with us. Maybe you think we've missed something or you have a request. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. That's going to do it for this episode. My thanks again to the extraordinary Vincent O'Neill of the Irish Classical Theatre Company and to his wonderful daughter, Laura, for putting us in touch. And of course, to you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. My thanks to all of you each and every one of you. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.